In the last few decades, we've come far in being able to understand the human brain. Advances in neurotechnology have allowed us to cure disease, treat disorders and prevent injuries. We've successfully enabled the deaf to hear again. Hearing sound for the first time ever. Can you hear daddy? Yes. Helped people use their limbs. In 1982, both of my legs were amputated due to tissue Through damage. technological Across innovation, I returned to my sport accident. stronger and better. And treated those with mental health disorders. How did you feel when you were told that you had ADHD at 28 years old? It was such a relief. Just understood myself. I had the path moving forward. But what about neurotechnology's application in the law? Technologies used to read and alter the brain are being introduced in courts around the world. How will neuro-based evidence revolutionise the way we view criminals? Who will decide who is a good citizen? How do we create a future worth wanting and not merely inherit whatever future results from new technology? You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Julia Karkatzel. The term neurotechnology really refers to two different kinds of things. This is Dr. Nicole Vincent, a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Transdisciplinary Innovation at UTS. On the one hand, you've got neurointervention techniques and neurodiagnostic techniques. Nicole has spent the last couple of decades researching and teaching neurolaw, philosophy, digital logic and computer systems. Neurodiagnostic techniques is just a reference to techniques with which you can look at the brain, inspect the brain, hence diagnostics. Neurointervention techniques, on the other hand, are techniques that make it possible for you to intervene into the brain. There are lots of neurodiagnostic techniques. You may be most familiar with a gel cap with lots of wires placed on people's heads in sci-fi movies. EEG, so that's uh, electroencephalography. Those are those caps that people put on your head and they've got lots of electrodes stuck all around the cap and they, what, what they do is that they pick up the underlying weak electrical signals that are generated as neurons communicate with one another. There's also MRI, which stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging Techniques. You're trying to look at the structures, at the shapes in the brain. Then there's fMRI, which has a similar goal to EEG. If you wanted to find out which part of the brain is used when you smell things or when you taste things, they are both designed to pick up activity inside your brain in trying to determine which areas of the brain are involved in certain functions. So let's say we've figured out, with the help of fMRI or EEG, which part of the brain is activated when we smell things. Well, now we know where smell is being processed in your brain. What we could do, perhaps, is use transcranial magnetic stimulation by focusing the beam of electromagnetic energy on that particular part of the brain to either stimulate it or to, or to reduce the stimulation of it. Other brain intervention techniques involve chemicals. The most common ones are psychotropic medications, you know, so Valium, uh, Xanax, Ritalin, LSD, uh, marijuana, and so on. 
all the technologies we spoke about for diagnosis, EEG, fMRI, and interventions like transcranial magnetic stimulation or psychotropic medications are being used in the medical field to treat disorders and cure disease. But they're also being used in the law system as neuro-based evidence. The scientists are saying, ah, look at that. So those are the parts of the brain that are being used right now in order to perform moral judgment. Now, if those parts of the brain, or maybe if connections between those parts of the brain and some other important part, happen to be damaged in a criminal offender, then this raises an important question of whether or not the criminal offender is bad, or whether, whether we should say that they are fully culpable for what they've done, or whether, rather, it's that the brain has been damaged. Neuro-based evidence has the power to change the outcome of cases. In the case R v Rowan 2021 in the Supreme Court of Victoria, an elderly man was spared jail after the murder of his wife due to his cognitive impairment. A neuropsychologist assessed the accused and found his executive skills were in extremely low range. The neuropsychologist said the accused most likely suffers from a frontal or behavioural variant of Alzheimer's disease, a condition which is permanent and deteriorating. Under the Crimes and Mental Impairment Act, he was permitted supervision in a mental health facility instead of a prison. Lawyers and judges are continuing to learn about brain anatomy and what MRIs and EEGs and other brain tests actually show. Most existing cases look similar to R. V. Rowan, with diagnoses of cognitive impairment. But neurotechnologies are rapidly being developed in neuroscience fields, gaining an increasingly more powerful ability to record, process and decode neural signals. Essentially, having the capacity to mind-read. Researchers at the University of California have created a machine able to translate your thoughts into a text. Imagine there is someone who can read your thoughts, even the one you don't perceive. And that might sound like science fiction, but it's more real than you think. We're trying to decode the information that's coming out of her, her EEG in real time and predict what it is that her eyes are looking at. And if it works, what we should see is every time that she gets a picture of scenery, it should say scenery, 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 scenery. A face, 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 face. We can literally see inside the human brain and learn aspects of our mental landscape without ever uttering a word. If police collect specimens at the scene of a crime, that is physical evidence, right? Um, so they might collect hair samples, blood samples. Although police are allowed to collect physical evidence, on the other hand, we do not approach the topic of testimonial evidence in the same way. There is such a thing as the right to remain silent. As neurotechnology improves, Nicole says we need to reconsider how we use neuro-based evidence. When I put a person in an fMRI machine, what I'm collecting is physical evidence in one sense. You know, like I'm just looking at how 
their water molecules are aligned or not aligned, how much water is there in different parts of the brain, how much oxygen, and so on. But on the other hand, this stuff is telling me something about what they're thinking. Without me having to ask them, I'm extracting something that is equivalent of testimonial evidence from them, from their brain. This poses a lot of human rights questions. If we should be able to ever read what a person is thinking, uh, to extract it out of their minds, to the extent that we have legislation that is designed to protect people's rights, the right to remain silent in this case, how is it that we should treat brain scanning equipment? As well as diagnostic neurotechnologies, interventions may be used to reform criminals and make them take responsibility for what they've done. This might look like prescribing medication instead of sending a criminal to prison. Prisons have a very revolving door, so people tend to go in and come out and go in and come out. And It'd be good to help, help reform people, right? To help them uh, understand what, what they did was wrong and to develop better habits and so on and so forth. Compelling the accused to undergo brain scans or forcing them to take medications as part of an intervention approach may be considered too invasive or undignifying to be inflicted on anyone. Who is the person that is going to decide you know, what the good person is going to be, that I'm going to become? For me, the dignity issue that is raised by neurointerventions, which aim to make people better, is that it treats every person who behaves in a way that counter to the, what the criminal law says as being deficited, as being, you know, lacking something, some important capacity. Nicole says neurotechnology has the potential to cause much larger consequences on society. An example, she says, is that one day neurotechnology may be powerful and effective enough to make accurate predictions such as whether a criminal will re-offend. Currently, past behaviour is the most helpful when predicting future actions, but scientists may soon find correlations between the brain makeup of criminals and those in society. Now, of course, most of us will be likely to say, and that's a good thing, because we don't want a dangerous offender to be out in society. But once that's been done, once we've predicted that somebody may, for instance, be very highly likely to reoffend. Well, that kind of restricts a judge's ability to make other decisions. In this instance, it would be negligent for the judge to ignore the data and not act to prevent a crime. You know, we have this thing called the law of negligence. As soon as you predict that something is risky, especially if it's a very big risk, if you proceed and you know about it, well, that's called recklessness. You know, because you know of the risk and you still take it. The dilemma is that it's going to put us in the situation of having to react in some way. By preventing risks, i.e. the criminal reoffending, freedoms will have to be compromised. These cases, it'll often contract some people's liberties, right? Because whose people's liberties? Well, those who are creating the risks. So the criminal's freedom, yes, but potentially also our freedoms as a society. New technology has the ability to realign our values as a society without us even realizing. The new technology causes us to fixate our attention on solutions to problems or risks, while moving our attention away from freedoms 
allowing them to be chipped away at over time. With this use of the technology, what we get is an increasingly restrictive society. It's a society where we increasingly notice more risks and in response, well, we don't want the risk, so let's tighten the screws somewhere and make it safer So, by, you know, by preventing this or preventing that. But by the time that you've prevented so many things, what you have is effectively a society with increasingly fewer freedoms. Self-driving cars are another example of a new technology where we focus heavily on safety and forget about other consequences. Safety on the roads is our concern. Well, who else might be affected in the rest of the world? May we find ourselves with a shortage of organ transplants? Because for every person that dies on the roads, it's likely that there may be 10 people whose lives can be saved through organ transplants. The last thing that I'm trying to do is to say that we should have more car accidents. Rather, what I'm saying is that what we ought to do is we ought to consider should we be talking to hospitals and asking them about the effects of what we're planning to do. You know, no, no artifact, no technology that we create will only ever have one effect. Whether it is the neurotechnology, whether it is the motor vehicle, all of these things will have effects across the political, the economic, the social, the technological, the legal, the environmental. This means we must be proactive rather than reactive with technology we invent. So if there are important procedural rules that need to be put into place, then let's put them into place. Rules that will develop certain neuro, certain neuro technologies, well then let's put those laws into place to make sure that we can create a better world with neurotechnology rather than just always reacting and trying to, I guess, respond to something that has happened to the world as if we had no agency or foresight. Neurotechnology is still in its very early stages of development and has many limitations. People in white lab coats with technology uh, that has the word neuro and that is the latest and greatest technology, they tend to dazzle audiences, they tend to dazzle judges, juries, and many studies have been published on the way in which just showing a brain scan can make a case so much more compelling, even though the brain scan is completely unrelated <laughs> to the case at hand. Courts quite often feel that it is, a, it is ultimately up to people, not machines or technologists, technocrats, to decide whether or not to trust someone, whether somebody is telling the truth or not. It, this is a job for the jury or for the judge, not for technology what the technology, what the neurotechnology does is, I guess, it takes over or it tries to take over by saying, hey, allow the technocrats to come in and they're going to tell you, they're going to decide whether to trust this person, this person's testimony or not. Nicole says it's important we evaluate how to use neuroevidence in combination with existing forms of evidence. 
I think that there is a case to be made for allowing neuroevidence into courts as one piece of the puzzle, but not as an overriding piece of the puzzle. Former Human Rights Commissioner Edward Santo led a three-year project on the human rights implications of new technology. UTS made its own submissions to the technology report, encouraging broader public debate and regulation. This needs to be something that is inclusive. This is not a matter for academics like me. It is not a matter for only journalists or only for politicians. It is a matter for everyone. It is a matter for the local shop owner, the bus driver. And it's in the context of hearing everybody's answers that we're ever going to get into, into a position to actually have a better idea of holes, oversights that we have. And by making sure that we have an institution, a government institution, that supports this kind of dialogue. We need to think about what is it that we want from these things? What kind of society is it that we would like to create? And then to design the sort of neurotechnologies that would help us make that better society. Think Digital Futures is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Digital Futures is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Digital Futures wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Carr-Katzel. Thanks for your company.